Hey, everybody. Welcome. Thank you again. Joining me another episode of the Lime Boss podcast. Hey there. I'm Heather Gray, aka the Lime Boss, and I am a functional practitioner who works with folks with Lyme disease, you know, autoimmune issues. Could it be Lyme? There's so many folks that are undiagnosed these days, you know, so if you've got embarrassing digestive issues, brain fog and chronic widespread pain, could it be Lyme disease? It was for me. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Lyme disease with today's guest, Sean Bean. Um, Sean has been dubbed the metabolic detective of integrative health. Oftentimes he'll be the last person that, uh, that people come to after they've exhausted every other therapy. Sean is a health coach consultant and uses a, a unique approach involving reverse engineering to unearth, unearth, I can't talk today, which is not good for a podcast host, unearth hidden imbalances and biochemical pathways and gene expressions that may be affecting your health in the past, present, and future because that all needs to be taken into account. Beautiful. Like many listeners, he had his own uh, share of health concerns. We'll dive into that here in a moment. Uh, due to many years of persistent research, he went from spending precious time bedridden, bedridden, oof, to being fully functional once again. Sean uses the bo- uh, used to be a bodybuilder and trainer, and then the perfect storm happened uh, and his health declined. Later, he would find out that it was caused by food poisoning and nutritional imbalances from extreme athleticism, which triggered expressions of gene mutations that he had already been dealing with mild Asperger's syndrome. So when his health caved in, he dedicated all of his time to learning what he could uh, do to be bringing his body back to balance. Uh, Sean possesses a Bachelor of Science in Exercise Science. Um, He's also a World Institute of Integrative Health Services. He's also certified in neuroendoimmunology. We'll have to get more into what that means. NLP and clinical hypnotherapy. And aren't you also a FDN like myself? No, I'm not an FDN. Oh my gosh, um, I thought you were an FDN. Okay, interesting. All this time, I thought we were both FDNs together. All right, awesome. Well, everybody, this should be an awesome show. Welcome, welcome, Sean. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. Yay. Awesome. Hey, so tell us a little bit about your, your health journey that got you here. I mean, we all could write a book about this. So this, we don't have so much time. So basically I was an extreme athlete pushing my body to the limit. And when you push your body to the limit, you don't listen to it. You get into alternative health patterns, such as all the, you know, alter circadian patterns, you know, being a bodybuilder, you know, learning the new techniques, you get up at three o'clock in the morning, go back to bed, wake up at five o'clock and train. I never did that before. So that was a huge impact in the system. Um, on top of that, it was, you know, just the, the stress of the dieting, not eating enough and having all the, you know, the stimulants that we used to use, such as caffeine, fedrin, so forth. So we were always constantly go, 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 because we always had, you know, low, low energy levels, which I found that the beef liver capsules, beef liver tabs helped out tremendously through prep. But, you know, everything went good during prep. And then the day after we decided, we decided to have a celebratory um, meeting and our tradition was to go have sushi after the contest. So because of the fact I was basically run down from all the lifestyle changes and work, change of jobs, my immune system was compromised. So here I was this 175 pound bodybuilder, you know, getting uh, probably about 190 and then you know, we went to a sushi bar and we met all my friends. We were there for about five or six hours. So we probably consumed probably about a hundred pieces of sushi. And in the meantime, I probably gained about 15 pounds of water weight in the process. So which really is good. 
But the thing was, is after we've done that, I was feeling fine the next day and all of a sudden it's like my stomach didn't feel too hot. Mm. And then I started to have extreme gas and digestive system slowing down. I knew something was wrong. So I went to the doctor and said, listen, something going on here. You know, I you normally gain 25 or 30 pounds after the rebound, you know, after you come off the contest. And I did. And I was eating four or five, you know, 5,000 calories a day and still not going nowhere. So I said something was wrong. So I knew it was probably a parasite, but he said, I don't know, they don't exist in America. <laughs> you know, this was 20 years ago. Right. And then it's like, you start the diagnostic testing. It's like, you have the 235 pound bodybuilder walking in. The first thing out of their mouth is, oh, it's steroids. I'm like, listen, man, I haven't touched that stuff in well over a year. So we can't pinpoint it on that. Okay. That's ridiculous. And even the father, even the other doctor was saying to, you know, a two-year summer. No, that wasn't a problem. So to make a long story short, after I got um, through that episode, I moved into a house that had, I found out had molded. Mm-hmm. And that's when that, that's when everything went to hell in the handbasket. Um, one day uh, within a month of being there, fully functional, even though I was, was having digestive problems, it wasn't as bad, but it, it accelerated. And basically I was trying to be a roommate to a cerebral palsy person who through the wash, you know, they weren't well kept. So the place was a mess. My mom's like 20, 15, 20 years later, she goes, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, we're cleaning off black mold behind the kitchen sink and underneath this or underneath that. And, you know, while I was there, one day I woke up, I had total amnesia. I didn't know who I was. I was a stranger in a strange land and woke up stuttering. And that was the day my life changed. And there was just a continued downhill slant from there. And as things progressed, I went from 230 pounds down to 165 pounds. So when you calculated muscle mass loss, I lost well over 100 pounds of lean muscle tissue within a nine-month period. And that was despite eating all the calories. So I went to multiple functional medicine doctors at the time. You got thyroid. You've got this. You know, you come back testosterone level of that of a eunuch, which is basically a castrated male. Um, and then you finally find somebody that listened and they're like, oh, it was mercury toxicity from all the tuna fish you ate. Well, I went through the, um, the PK protocol, which was the phospholipid therapy, which was life-changing at the time. And it completely changed my life. I got better. I, you know, got stronger. It's like, you know, when you're going to the gym, it's usually like, you know, you're 165 pounds soaking wet you know, getting, thinking you have AIDS through all the weight you lost. And right. then six weeks later, your, you know, strength is increased by tenfold, you know, because of the therapy you're doing was actually working. Now, if you fast forward that, it's like you have these humps, you have these glitches, you know, you get better, get worse, get better, get worse. And then finally get stabilized. I got, had the opportunity to work with an integrative doctor and we worked on his complex cases. He was a medical doctor. So I learned the system. I learned to code. I learned to do things from a diagnostic standpoint that was relative to insurance-based. So I took that practice and used that today, always thinking about, you know, if I ever get audited or something, how would an insurance company deal with this? How would, you know, how would a medical doctor deal with this? So that's where my, um, my viewpoint is, is that, okay, is this medically justifiable? And whenever I make recommendations to my clients, I always want to have... Um, evidence-based approaches, medically justifiable, 
and has scientific researcher data to back it up. That way you get challenged for a medical doctor for, or a practitioner, you have the evidence to help you out. And basically this led into meeting a lot of wonderful people like yourself, Dr. Ben Lynch, and a whole slew of uh, clinicians that we all collaborated together. We had all um, same philosophies and we just saw our, um, saw my career just explode. And I have not no, I have absolutely no medical training. Everything I learned was School of Hard Knocks. Everything was from research and evidence-based. Well, you know, back when um, uh, CureZone was going strong back in 2000, CureZone still up in operation. They, they had a lot of foundations in place 20 years ago. And with the genetics, I was, you know, one of the uh, leading driving forces to get where genetics there are today because of the fact of knowing that, hey, let's stop looking at these genes and look to, let's look at the factors that are expressing these genes. And this led me into my current methodology by not focusing on the genetics as much, but look at the pathways that are being expressive within and the factors that are, are affecting those pathways. You know, you might have a, um, you might have a gene that has associated with Actually, before we go down that route, I'm going to stop you. (laughs) Um, We're going to back up just a minute. So mold, that is just so insidious. And there's so many practitioners that I've had on. And that seems to be a common thread through a lot of people's stories. So that's just horrific. And it sounds like you're still kind of dealing with certain levels of that on a a personal and, and, you know, aspect, health aspect. But I'd love you to actually get a little bit. uh, You mentioned in your um, bio about Asperger's. That's not something we've actually talked about a lot on this podcast. Can you can you dive a little deeper into enlightening us on what that what you know what is Asperger's and and kind of when that came about and all that fun stuff? I was very unique when I was young. I was always different. I was athletic, but I also had learning disabilities. I was dyslexic, but I had the memory that could, you know, look at a book, fall asleep in class, never take notes, but score straight A's on a test. I had photographic memory that was impeccable. Even when I was older, when I worked at uh, Vanguard, they were scared because I was memorizing all the account numbers and and, (laughs) credit card numbers, you know, um, because I had the ability to uh, identify hidden patterns. And with Asperger's, it's very challenging because autism was not known when I was younger. So therefore we were always considered shy or special education. and I went to child development. And one of the triggers when I did dug into the research was my speech impediment. My speech impediment, I didn't start speaking until I was four years old. And then I had to go through speech pathology. Um, and then I never shut up. <laughs> but the thing with the Asperger's was, is um, I was always stuttering. I had a stutter. And then later through genetics and stuff, I actually found that I have a genetic defect in GAMT, which is the uh, gene that's associated with creatine synthesis. And we do know that in autism, Asperger's, and those ADSD spectrums, the main things that we utilize are creatine, carnitine, um, and phospholipids, more so creatine and carnitine. When you give people, when they give um, uh, autistic kids creatine and carnitine, uh, they come to life because a lot of them don't synthesize it properly. And you have a lot of the autistic kids that are, we call hypotonia, hypotonic which means that they have floppy muscles. And it's like, 
when you just give a kid uh, a little bit of carnitine with a little bit of optimal electrolyte and something else, the father comes back and say, you know, my kid's now swinging on a you know, jungle gym like he's a monkey. And he never was able to do that with his own strength. That is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And when you just explain the simple chemistry behind it, they're like, oh, that makes sense. So with Asperger's, what happens is, is we have, um, it can come as an expression because Asperger's really came on with my first mold hit because of the fact that it puts you into a stimming motion to where I probably have traumatic brain, hedge, brain injury from slamming my head against the wall so many times and actually putting steel, putting dents in steel doors. Because at that time you get this, and no, like line, you get a neurological excitation and you just don't know whether, you know, we, we, you guys call it Lyme rage. We call it stimming. Mm-hmm. And we were hitting ourselves, banging my head against the wall. And you, and you don't realize you're doing it. It's mm-hmm. almost like a autonomic response. And still to this day, if I have a mold exposure, I do have to restrain myself from going down that rabbit hole because of the fact of the, it's my, auto, it's my autonomic programming. So, but I don't, since I've added glutathione, since I've added nitric oxide boosters. Um, I love nitric oxide. Oh my God. What a game changer <laughs> that's been. Yeah. And we can get into the whole, that, that and a whole nother conversation, but the two pathways I really focus on are the glutathione pathway, the nitric oxide pathway, the NRF2 pathway, the superoxide, super SOD pathway, uh, and the sulfation pathway. Um, uh, when you're trying to deal with methylation, as we all know with Lyme, you chase a rabbit down the hole. Um, I was actually one of the first practitioners to put a foothold on that, say, guys, stop taking, chasing methylation. How about we support it instead? And all of a sudden you see this dynamic shift happen in the Lyme community where we put the brakes on and we no longer chase methylation anymore. We rather work on the sulfation pathway. We work on the sulfation pathway and the glucuronidation pathway. What that does is that helps to fill the uh, methylation, sometimes fill the holes that, the, that are in the methylation and the glucuronidation pathway. That's why I like to, um, that's why diagnostic testing is crucial in these cases. It was so frustrating back in the beginning. It was like awesome with Ben Lynch's stuff and to have this information. But at the same time, in the beginning, a lot of folks were just treating SNPs right? Which not realizing the the downstream effects of, of whatever else that you're affecting. And it was causing all kinds of other problems, you know, opening up a whole nother can of worms. Like, you know, it, it was great. And I'm glad that we're, we're like you, people are looking more at how genes are working together, how pathways are working together um, to get things, you know, talking and working to each other properly instead of just, you know, no different than a, a functional practitioner treating the piece of paper, you know, oh, well, this is out. So we're going to give you this supplement, right? You, you've got to go deeper than that. Yes, you do. And, you know, I use specific diagnostic testings to where people come in with the amounts of testing and they have the answer right there. The only problem is, is the practitioners due to their lack of training or lack of knowledge, and it's not their fault. You know, I'm not bashing practitioners. It's just the lack of training or lack of information that they have, you know, and as a practitioner, I don't like to do the dance if I don't know the music. So therefore, if I don't know something, I'm not going to try to dance around it and make myself look good. I'm going to be like, listen, this is out of my realm of expertise, you know, well, how do you do post-traumatic stress disorder? I'm like, listen, I know this wonderful practitioner that, that does this EFT tr- 
does EFT, emotional release technique. Um, she's great. Uh, she's relatively very inexpensive. I feel that she'd be a great adjunct to our, because I've taken you as far as I can. We're running, that, we're running in that emotional block from past trauma. Yeah. You know, even transgenerational. You know, we need to take care of that. So in order for this to work, where you have a, a Lyme doctor who's doing a wonderful job with antibiotics, but they're missing the fact that the microbiome is completely off, you know? And I always tell, I always, I always mention to my clients, tell your practitioner or doctor to get in contact with me because we can save so much time by, you, by working together in regards to, hey, you're taking this probiotic, when you're working on the microbiome these days, we don't use broad spectrum probiotics anymore. Right. We specifically target it. You know, people come into me with these laundry lists. I'm like, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is the reason why it's wrong because this strain does this. So what I did was, is over the past six months, I actually map out the different strains in regards to the metabolic pathways and the neurological pathways, how they intersect. And you only come down to maybe like five or 10 that you really need when you're strategically placing. Because what happens with the gut is, is that what's called crossfeed. So if you have, um, or maybe you don't need a probiotic, maybe you need a prebiotic, maybe you need a postbiotic, you know, prebiotics, but then if you have a prebiotic and the person's allergic to this, but not to that, you know, if you have a person that has peanut allergy, you would use, you know, Plantarum 299B because Plantarum 299B actually reverses peanut allergies. Or then if you have a person that has a milk allergy or a milk sensitivity, you use GOS, which is galacto-oligosaccharides, which is a prebiotic. So that what that does is that grows the lactobacillus or the bifidobacterium that actually helps the enzyme secrete the lactase. And then if your gut is destroyed because of the mucosa barrier is not intact, and the mucosa barrier, which is usually driven by the alkaline phosphatase, which everyone is low in, okay, but nobody's catching it. What that does is that's the brush border that secretes the enzymes that helps break down the sugars. And a lot of people are fructose intolerance because they lack the enzymes off the GI, off the mucosa barrier. So here they are pumping fructose in and they're causing more inflammation to their gut without realizing it. So just making a few changes, as I'm sure you're starting to see and learn from other practitioners and off your self exploration, that a broad spectrum probiotic is not the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you for that little kind of entry into our talk today, the biochemical pathways and gene expressions in Lyme and other health conditions. So, you know, you had alluded to that with your Asperger's as well. And so I would love for you to, to like, yeah, tie that up and, and, and what exactly it is you're looking at. Basically, in a nutshell, what I do is I look at diagnostic testing. And out of the diagnostic testing, I look at the pathways that are being affected. Once you find those pathways being affected, they're going to link back to the higher probability of gene expressions. Okay, I'll give an example. On the organic acid test, everybody wins it. On the organic acid test, everybody looks at erratic acid as ammonia, which is true to some point. But when you look at the clinical, but when you look into clinical literature, it's actually when erratic acid level is low on the organic acid test from what was Great Plains is now Mosaic. It's actually a representation of PEMT gene expression, which is phosphoethylmethyltransferase, which is synthesis of phosphatidylcholine. So oftentimes you have a woman who is 55 or older and they have this low erotic acid. You know that their estrogen levels are going to be low because you need estrogen in order to stimulate the PEMT, which is to make the phosphatidylcholine. 
And that's why one of the ways the women put on weight become estrogen dominant. Yeah. Dominant. And not so much estrogen dominant, they pour insulin resistance. Mm. And then what happens is they gain weight because your body has to increase the aromatase activity to make more estrogen to help you lose weight. <laughs> so therefore, by looking at one pathway, the organic acid test I've broken down biochemically with gene expressions to 13 or 14 different gene expressions and pathways that are bound in there. So that one test does probably about five or $6,000 worth of lab work when it's properly interpreted. That's so that good. way- Do you teach practitioners how to look at a note like that? I actually train practitioners on how to, um, I actually go have a mentorship program where I take practitioners through uh, case studies that they may have or I may have. I show them because when you show, what you do is you take a couple tests from different labs and you cross-reference them. And that's where the Asperger's comes in. The Asperger's allows me to look at things not from a one-dimensional one avenue, but from a three-dimensional aspect where it's like, you might have a Dutch test, you might have organic acid test, or you look at the organic acid test. I'm like, oh, by the way, you just did a Dutch test. Because of your alterations in your uh, 5-HIA in your quinolinic acid ratio, you're going to probably see your CYP1B1 elevated on your Dutch test. And then Dutch test comes back, you see it's elevated. Or the fact is, is, well, it's still in the normal range, but it's not about the ranges, it's about the ratios. When you learn the ratios and the relationships, that takes that whole test and changes the whole dynamics. People come in to me for practitioners that have done a wonderful job getting them to so far. And what happens is they'll come in with organic acid tests, got one marker, and they'll go and the practitioner will be like going by what's on the paper. And right. when I get a hold of the test, that's why when I do organic acid tests with my clients, I tell them, I don't look back at your history mm. and refresh my mouth. I let the test dictate the history and the accuracy. And they are just like dumbfounded <laughs> because the fact is, is, well, it doesn't show mold, but I, yeah, but you know, when you look at the patterns, you know, when you have an NAT pathway, which is associated with the aldehyde pathway, you'll see an elevated B5, which everybody thinks is from supplementation. But if you're taking all the same supplementation in the B complex, why aren't the, all the others high, right? Mm. It's utilization. So just because it's high doesn't mean it's not deficient because it's excreting it out. So a lot of people come to me and they're like, my practitioner didn't have mold. I'm like, yeah, but you know, when you look at the pathways, it's like the pathways are being infected. The test is telling me that you're having a problem in your ability to detoxify aldehydes. And your profile looks like that of a non uh, like an alcoholic liver mm. and a person who has a traumatic brain injury. You know, this is what we see in COVID. COVID are basically walking fungal balls because what's happening is, is when we address them from a antifungal standpoint, long haulers are, guess what? Getting better. The reason being is, is the COVID is actually weakening the immune system, triggering the hidden mold that was from a past exposure, allowing it to express because the immune system, no different than Lyme. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot in the Lyme world too, the reactivation of- The reactivation. And it doesn't matter. Yep. And it doesn't matter, you know, EBV, whatever. But the thing is, is we all know mold and Lyme have a unique relationship. And oftentimes I have multiple clients from doctors that have treated Lyme for to the cows come home. And all you do is the testing I use now, I use the organic acid test as a segue, but the testing I use now is my Michael labs. I look at the blood. 
the blood can't lie. And as soon as these people start treating with antifungals when they're ready, they get better after years of being treated with Lyme. That's fascinating. Yeah, that was, I was treating Lyme before I knew I actually had a mold issue and then I wasn't getting all the way better. And then, so I had to circle around and, and get the mold and that's, that's, and now when I work with people, I tell them, I ask them three things that we need to rule out first, mold, cavitations, because that's when I started to stutter, when those infections from wisdom teeth removal were getting so bad and it was near my brain, I actually, my cognitive decline was steeply going down very quickly. And then the other one would be sleep apnea, because again, if you're not getting enough oxygen when you sleep at night, right, your best protocols, a lot of the things that you do aren't going to work to its full benefit if you're not getting the proper amount of sleep, deep sleep and um, enough oxygen while you sleep. I am so glad that you brought that up with the oat because I have a lot of practitioners who listen as well as just a lot of, 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 of clients and patients that listen as well. You know, that might be something I need to look into because I'm, I'm still fascinated about how to get the most out of a certain lab, right? The most bang out of the buck. And I know that there's a way that you can read in between that to get a bigger picture. So that's freaking brilliant. I'm going to have to look deeper into that because I'm still unraveling like I have come so far in my own health journey, but I still can't get around the histamine issue. And so like ferments that are supposed to be so good for you and bone broth, I can't do. They cause so much pain and brain fog. And I gain 10 pounds of water weight that I just, you know, most people were like, well, then just stay away from it, Heather. But I, I that's because that's because most likely you have a sulfation problem. What happens right. is your sulfation buckets overloaded. And what happens is, is you have to treat the glucuronidation first. When you treat the glucuronidation, that takes stress off the sulfation pathway. When you take stress off the sulfation pathway, then your histamine um, has a way to um, filter out, so to speak. And you can actually use you can actually use um, glucuronidation pathway by you supporting with um, green tea. Green tea. You can use um, calcium deglucurate. You can use um, a whole variety of things to work on the glucuronidation. And that's one of the things that I do is is I have people that can't handle glutathione, but once I start on the glucuronidation pathway, going into the diet track, either, yeah. I had a person who couldn't, I was a medical doctor, who couldn't handle glutathione. She's now doing glutathione injections. And the reason the segue was in the beta glucuronidase pathway, the glucuronidation pathway. Once you open that glucuronidation pathway, it, it's a safety valve. What it does is it's a backup system. When everything else goes down, that kicks in. But the problem is, is glucuronidation becomes problematic when you have a small bacterial overgrowth. Small bacteria overgrowth works on the conjugation pathway. That's why when you see high hypuric on 10, you know that that's going to be a, a dead flag for phase one to phase two dysfunction. You know, the trash man's not coming around fast enough to take trash out. And you en end up with that liver stagnation. You then end up with, that's also, I'm starting to find that, um, I'm starting to find hidden markers on the nitric oxide pathway through mm -hmm. the organic acid test. Uh, but as we know, if you just use increase your nitrates from um, non-oxalate forms, which is one of the best forms is arugula. Arugula is great. Some people can't take it because arugula is actually um, high sulfur. Mm. So it actually works on the sulfation pathway. But the one that I use is red spinach extract. Red spinach extract is zero oxalates, zero sugar, mm. and it's got no impact on the sulfation pathway. And the company that I use has 235 milligrams of the uh, nitrate form itself. So this what way- What are you using? I think, I don't know it offhand, but um, I have to Google it every time for my clients. But the thing is, is it's, you know, it's 
zero sugar, zero, it's this straight red spinach extract. And nice. that has worked phenomenally. Because some people, the, the Berkeley, I love. I take. I think two, that's the one that I use and it's a beet I, extract. Yeah, it's a beet extract, you know, and it only has 10 milligrams of oxalates in it, which is not bad, but some people can't handle the B one. Right. Or some people can't handle the methyl B12. You know, even though methyl B12 is oral form, people can still act with it, you know? And that's where the organic acid test is, is people come in, you see the deviation on, you know, the dopamine pathway and the, the epinephrine pathway. And it's like, wow, that's a comp gene expression. You're probably magnesium deficient, you're copper deficient, you're, you're low cortisol because you need cortisol to activate the, uh, the, you need cortisol to activate the uh, dopamine beta hydroxylase pathway. But then if you have clostridia in the mix, that doesn't work either. So sometimes the clostridia, you'll see with the high uh, P creosol, the high P creosol could be representation of the, of the pathogen, but it could be an indication that the microbiome is shifting itself. Same way with hydrogen sulfide. If you're not getting glutathione, you're going to see H. pylori rise. You're going to see hydrogen sulfide rise because if the body's not getting it, it's, the body has a bunch of negative feedback loops. And what I've learned to study was I learned to study those negative feedback loops. And once you understand those negative feedback loops, you know, you give something like sulfurophans. Why does sulfurophans help H. pylori? Well, if H. pylori is trying to get to, potentially H. pylori is trying to get to glutathione, if the body senses it got glutathione, what happens? It says, hey, I don't need H. pylori no more. Boom, it drops. And that's what sulfurophans do. Sulfurophans activate the NERF2 pathway in order to turn on the mechanism to create glutathione and SOD and nitric oxide, all your master, all your antioxidants itself. You know, that's another reason why people don't respond to glutathione because you need NERF2 when present. If NERF2 is not present, you're not going to respond to glutathione. Okay? Yeah. I had much- somebody look at my DNA once and he told me that I should never, ever go on uh, glutathione, um, that it would react poorly in me, but he never explained, you know, deeper on why or if there's a workaround. You know, I, I like are, workarounds, there, right? There are workarounds because you're already taking the one workaround, which is the nitrates. That works off the NADPH path, the NADPH oxidase pathway. The other pathway is the convert wraparound to the hydrogen peroxide pathway. The hydrogen peroxide comes off the uh, SOD and catalase. So sometimes working on the catalase helps that through. But what happens is, is sometimes NADPH and nitrates might be one of the mechanisms where you could be selenium deficient, okay? Mm. And a lot of people with chronic illness, they have, you know, the number one ratio for longevity is the oxidized versus reduced glutathione ratio. And we all have, you know, Centurion, I worked on a Centurion program one time and they all found out the Centurions have 90% reduced glutathione to 10% or less of oxidized glutathione. Mm. When we look at chronic illness in general, it's opposite. Right. Completely opposite because I use a lab called HDRI um, Diagnostics out of New Jersey. And they run a panel for like 140 bucks. And what it does is it tests the reverse to, reverse to oxidized glutathione ratio. And then if you're pumping in glutathione, you're just driving that sucker way up. Right. You have to open it up by supporting other pathways and getting that going and making sure you don't get spinning too fast. What happens when you get spinning too fast, if you bring in reduced glutathione, guess what? It's going to go to oxidized glutathione. Okay. Just because you bring in reduced glutathione, that bullet's going to take it, you know, super antics kryptonite all the time. 
you're just keep loading Superman more kryptonite. Okay. He's never getting a chance to rest. Right. So you have to lay off that pathway, support the other pathways, give it a break. Once you give it a break, then you push forward. Okay. That totally makes sense. I was, I was a little worried about having you on today because we've been friends and I've followed you for years and I know how fucking smart you are. And I was like, God, he's going to start talking and it's going to be like Chinese. And I'm only going to know about 10% what he's talking about. And it's, it's been about that, but you've been able to actually keep it at a level where I've been able to keep up. So hopefully everyone else can too. Um, but if in summary, right, if you don't get anything else from this, like there's a, a better way to look at the oat, to dive in deeper and look at these pathways and, and, and there are workarounds and yeah, like I just, this, this is, I'm just so excited right now. Like I can't wait to get off this and, and dip, dive in deeper and find out about your, uh, your program. And, you know, and, and just, you don't need mounds of testing. I use about three or four different tests. That's all you need. It's the interpretation of the data. Absolutely. That's where the key loads. Okay. Uh, $6,000 work of the practitioner. I'm like, what? I say, <laughs> go get your money back. Okay. Because you don't need all this testing. The answers, right. your answers are already there. And it's like how you can tell Lyman and CBC for crying out loud. It's so, so easy. And that way, it's like, you know, I don't know where to go. I'm like, how about we run a $100 test called an anti-diuretic hormone test, okay? If your ADH is low, this usually tells me you've got motor Lyme going on or um, diabetes and spinatus, which is rare, you know, unless you're 70 years old. But if you have an ADH low, tells me you've got pituitary issues and it tells you you're dealing with my remote. Hmm. So then once you know that information, then you start digging in. It's like, okay, what came first, the car or the horse? Then you start, at least it gives you an idea where to start, you know? So just by using one test. So if you have anti-diuretic hormone low and your MCV is 90 or above, that usually tells me that line comes onto the radar, but it's elevated, M elevated MCV greater than 90 could also indicate a thiamine deficiency. It could also indicate a uh, functional B12 deficiency, which would be, you know, if you do an organic acid test, your methylonic acid may be high or low, and then you use the blood test as a correspondence. And then if you treat or address the B12 pathway, it doesn't go anywhere. Guess what? You've got the other factors, you know, to rule out. So what you do is you just knock things off you start at the cascade where you look at the pathogens environmental toxins emotional stress structural stress okay meaning people could next could be out c1 c2 they there are lifestyles they have sleep apnea that they got centralized sleep apnea a lot of people that have lyme have centralized centralized sleep apnea and it's missed because it's a pituitary response until you go to a good doctor i found six cases of that in the past year that they missed because they did have sleep apnea, but they came up and moderate sleep apnea. But it was because of the pituitary stuff. And as you know, emotional is huge on the vagus nerve. Vagus nerve, gut brain interaction. And if you don't have the building blocks to make the acetylcholine, vagus nerve's not going to work. Same way with nitric oxide. If you have nitric oxide present, you don't have the glutathione, that nitric oxide is not going to get stored as nitroglutathione. So when you go out into the sun, you're not going to get the response that you're going to have. You're actually going to have an anti, you're actually going to have a pro-oxidant response rather than an antioxidant response. So all these people that have problems with the sun are going to probably be nitroglutathione deficient, which means they may have too much glutathione, not enough nitrates, or too much nitrates, and not enough glutathione. Mm. 
What are your thoughts of using uh, the CD57 uh, for a marker for mold or lime? Um, I don't really follow that too much. I mean, if the CD57 is low, it usually means they're opposite of our number rate. CD57 being high is actually inactive and the one is on the lower end is um, in remission. I don't really follow that. I mean, the one factor that I found, like when my, one of the doctors I worked with the other day, she did um, this huge panel from Cyrex and everything was out, 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 out. And I said, there's one marker on there that's the most crucial, that's your TH1 and TH2 imbalance. Me knowing that tells me how to drive your, you know, tells me what supplements we need to be careful with and what interventions need to be done. There, was, there must have been 28 different markers and my eyes went right to that one. And as soon as I knew that information, you know, you can use the different peptides, which is thymus, you know, thymus and alpha one, thymus and thymus and alpha one, um, to help balance that out. You can use LTN. I mean, there's different modalities that you can use to balance that out. But if you knew that information, that would help out tremendously. Absolutely. I wanted to touch back a little bit about your story really quick, because in, in FDN, we do talk about um, exercise and being balanced and stress on the body is stress on the body, right? Whether it's good stress or bad stress. And you talked about that this, this high stress lifestyle of being an active bodybuilder kind of led to this breakdown. So how do you work out now these days? And how is that more balanced? Due to the fact of lifestyles have changed and life situations have changed, workouts probably been put on a hold for a couple of years. But as soon as we make the proper adjustments, as soon as I um, um, get the proper medications, which I'm going to, I have several clients and doctors that I know they're starting on Sporinox, um, which is an antifungal that have been through many different treatments and failed. Now they're starting to do Sporinox and they're starting to get better. And the reason being is, is they're going after the killing. But again, when we go into the kill mode, we have to open the pathways, open Make sure everything's open. Make sure the microbiome is in check. Make sure every, you know, all the dot, you know, all the ducks are in a row first. But they're having phenomenal results. They're also long haulers on COVID. And we're starting to see with long haulers, we treat them as a traumatic brain injury, um, mold case with alcoholic liver. They're getting better where other practitioners and they're, they don't need peptides. They don't, they don't need all that stuff. You know, once you get rid of the root cause of the problem, which is, you know, most likely the mold is in the nasal cavity. And over the years, you know, being in these exposures, biofilms are created and your immune system keeps things in check. And when your immune system keeps them in check, everything's fine and dandy. But now with onslaught, onslaught of COVID, your immune system's compromised. Now all those mycotoxins are, that have been released are getting more expressive. Then you have electromagnetic fields that are amplifying even more. So you're getting this shitstorm of mycotoxin overload. And then here is a little crater right into the brain. This drips back down to the neck. This drips back into your throat, goes back Looks down like into the lungs. Off there for a minute. <laughs> they go back down. They, they go back and you then you wonder why people's guts aren't getting better. Right, it's, right, it's, right. It's, it's, the, it's the nasal drip that's toxic. That's acting like an antibiotic. That's why a lot of people, when I do the microbiome test, it looks like they have antibi they've done systems with antibiotics. It's not. It's because their bioflow is off, which should be antimicrobial, which is, should be a disinfectant, is turning now into an antibiotic. Right. 
and it's wiping down your milli, causing malabsorption, and then adding more stress to a compromised liver already. It's fascinating how much the micro, the oral microbiome and the sinuses affect the gut because all this crap in here, you know, so people who aren't taking care of their mouth and all that bacteria and nastiness getting down into their gut. But no, it was fascinating. We were just at a cell core conference a week and a half ago, and they were uh, recommending the Therisage, which is like a neti pot, but on steroids. So it gets it up you know, further on in the sinuses. And they were talking about putting a little bit of carboxy or another binder in there. And they were talking about people actually getting out fungal balls. And I was like, this is like next level shit here. Like, I I don't know. I I thought it was awesome. They were even showing people putting paras in the water and actually pulling out parasites from their sinuses. (laughs) Right. Could you imagine? I, I, I have a doctor that I'm working with. She's a really good friend. And we, she started on Spornox and the antifungal and our sporinoxin and um, antiparasitic and she's i'm getting these texts these bowls of worms are coming out of me i can't believe it this is all in me and i'm like it's what you want it you know right. she's feeling and she's feeling better right which is the most important thing Absolutely. you know and when she started sporinox she said that the muscle twitching actually stopped that she's had for all these years so That's- and she actually, she actually did the my mycotoxin test too. Um, yeah, sporinoxin, awesome. Hey, now comes the shameless plug time of the show. So, Ooh. how can people find you, and what are you putting out these days? What would you like to promote? Uh, basically, I have a couple different things. Number one, I'm doing the mentorship program, which is a one-on-one with people. If they have, uh, I don't believe in doing like twenty per class because I want to educate and I want to have time to really focus. So people, it's not about the money or the time. It's about getting the information out there. So practitioners can be the top best they can. You know, uh, what I basically teach is functional medicine. I refer on steroids um, because with functional medicine, I'm kind of, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with it because I, they do have some great principles, but I think they need to be uh, refined a little bit um, because it's kind of more of a, uh, it's no different from pharmaceutical and nutraceuticals. So, you know, when you can have a client that are takes six different supplements and getting to show, hey, we can do this one thing that takes care of this, they're like so happy. Same with testing too. It's like, you don't need all this testing. You can do this one test first. And from here, that way, you know, practitioners are charging $6,000, $10,000 for a six month, eight month program, you know, which is great, you know, which has to be phenomenal. But in these days and times with economics, economics are going to get harder too. You know, so people are going to be looking for most bang for your buck. And as a practitioner, what I try to pride myself on is providing that, you know, concrete information, scientific evidence-based research information uh, that's at an understandable level because, you know, there's nothing worse than having a practitioner start off on mental masturbation, as I refer to it, you know, which often I see. And the, the clients gets frustrated and they just don't get results and compliance drops. So, you know, if you can teach a neuroendocrinology to a six-year-old, then you should be able to teach it to a medical doctor. But unfortunately, sometimes you can't because of how they're trained to think. So um, the mentorship program, one-on-one, it's also, you know, up to uh, a small class um, to review case studies, to go over case studies, you know, to help them refine their skills. And by going one-on-one, 
hey, if you're, if you're a psychiatrist, we can focus on that. If you're an endocrinologist, we can focus on that or whatever your passions are. And we can pull everything together at the end. That's why I like it uh, individualized. Number two is seeing personal clients. Um, personal clients are, you know, they can contact me at matrixhealthwell at gmail.com. Um, my website is currently being under renovation. So don't contact me through there right now. Okay. Um, because I have a lot of people try to go through that way, not the best way, but matrixhealthwell at gmail.com is one of the better ways. The other offer is, is I do peer peers. So if a doctor's got a case or a clinician's got a case, and they're stuck, I charge 150, 30 minutes. And people can set up a consult, um, bricks of consultations to where um, they can plug in five, six consultations and go half hour hourly just to do case reviews or you have questions. Sort of course, sort of like a clinician reference desk, you know. And if I don't know the answer, I can reach out to one of my colleagues uh, for the answer. So, those are the couple things that I've got going right now. I'm also um, doing these podcasts, which are great educational tools um, for people. And, you know, like I said, you have to be able to be your own health advocate. And find a practitioner that is best suited for your individual style, you know? Absolutely, 110%. I can't agree more. Sean, thank you again for joining us today. I really appreciate everything that you shared and all the wonderful truth bombs you dropped on us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Heather, and look forward to speaking again. Absolutely. Sounds great. Everybody else, have a healthy day. <laughs>